welcome back to the Furs and Frontiers podcast. I'm your hostess, Tracy Walmer. Today we're going to talk about mountain medicine. I debated calling this section 101 Ways to Kill a Mountain Man, but realized that while any one of these events could actually kill him, more often than not he lived to tell the tale at the next rendezvous. So we're going to take a deep dive into the things that could have injured or possibly killed him. The most obvious threat for a man working in the wilderness is an animal attack. Some of these attacks, had they happened today, would have taken a whole team of trauma surgeons to fix. And there's no such thing as a trauma surgeon in the wilderness. Many times, the dental work and minor treatments were done by your local barber. In the rare cases a doctor was available on the frontier, the tools and methods of hygiene at his disposal were sketchy at best. And sometimes, when a mountain man suffered a horrendous attack, he was sewn back together by his comrades using a less-than-sterile needle and either cat gut or animal sinew. If the damage was severe enough, he was usually just made comfortable and left to die. Hugh Glass is one of the most magnificent stories of a trapper who suffered an animal attack. And if you haven't watched the movie The Revenant, I suggest you do. While it's not completely historically accurate, it will give you a close-up look at the trials these guys faced. Jedediah Smith was also attacked by a bear, and he had his scalp and ear torn free, dangling down in front of his face. A young greenhorn trapper named Jim Clymer had to sew him back together. And this is why in Jed Smith's pictures, he has his hair long on one side. It was to cover those scars. Thomas Fitzpatrick also spent a hellish week in a tree when wolves refused to let him come down. Eventually, the pack was finished with their buffalo carcass and he could descend. And while that wasn't a direct attack, it did cause him a whole lot of issues being stuck in a tree for a week with no food and no water exposed to the elements. Besides the obvious damage caused by an animal attack and the subsequent infection associated with open wounds in the wilderness, a trapper would have also had to worry about diseases from the wild animals themselves. Parasitic infections were always a possibility. Ringworms and tapeworms could be picked up from infected animals. And so would the awful disease hydrophobia, commonly called rabies. We know of several cases of it occurring at the rendezvous, as well as some of the journal entries from the trappers themselves and from the pioneers on the Oregon Trail. Warren Ferris, a trapper and cartographer with the American Fur Company, kept his account in a diary that was later published under the title Life in the Rocky Mountains. He writes, Whilst we were all asleep one night, an animal, supposed to be a dog, passed through camp, bit several persons as they lay, and then disappeared. On the following morning, considerable anxiety was manifested by those who were bitten, under the apprehension that the animal might have been infected with hydrophobia. And several of them took their guns and went about camp, shooting all suspicious dogs. But we were unable to determine that anyone was positively mad. During the day, information came from the Rocky Mountain Fur Company, who were encamped a short distance below us on the same side of the river, that several were likewise bitten in their camp during the night, and that a wolf supposed to be rabid had been killed in the morning. He goes on to say, in the fall subsequent, one of the persons who had been bitten, a young Indian brought from the Council Bluffs by Mr. Fontenelle, 
after having given indications of hydrophobia, disappeared one night from camp and was heard no more. The general impression being that he wandered off while he was under its influence and he perished. Another individual died of that horrible malady after having several violent spasms while on his way from the mountains to St. Louis in the company of two others. Charles Larpenjur, a trapper with both the Rocky Mountain Fur Company and then later with the American Fur Company, he kept a diary for most of his 40 years in the business, and the diary was finally published in 2007. He states, Three of our men were bitten that night, all of them in the face. One poor fellow, by the name of George Holmes, was badly bitten on his right ear and face. This time, the animal was among the cattle, and it bit our largest bull, which went mad afterward on the bighorn, where we had made the boats. The wolf could have been shot, but orders were not to shoot in camp, for fear of accidentally killing someone, and so Mr. Wolf escaped again. But we learned afterwards that it had been killed by some of Mr. Fontenelle's men. Washington Irving's accounts of Captain Bonneville's adventures says, Captain Bonneville relates the case of an Indian who was a universal favorite in the lower camp. He had been bitten by one of these animals. Being out with a party shortly afterwards, he grew silent and gloomy and he lagged behind the rest as if he wished to leave them. They halted and urged him to move faster, but he entreated them not to approach him and, leaping from his horse, began to roll around on the earth, gnashing his teeth and foaming at the mouth. Still he retained his senses and warned his companions not to come near him, as he should not be able to restrain himself from biting them. Irving goes on to say, Another instance we have from a different person who was bitten in the encampment, one of the men of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company had been bitten. He set out shortly afterwards in the company of two white men on his return to the settlements, meaning St. Louis. In the course of a few days, he showed symptoms of hydrophobia and became, became raving toward night. At length, breaking away from his companions, he rushed into the thicket of willows where they left him to his fate. Now, another common cause of injury or death was from an Indian attack. While many tribes were friendly with the Europeans, many had deep-seated hatred for any white man because they saw them all as intruders. We know that several of the famous trappers employed the services of Dr. Whitman at the 1835 rendezvous to remove projectiles from their bodies, including Jim Bridger, who had carried an arrowhead in his shoulder for three years before having the good doctor dig it out. There are countless recordings of ambushes and outright attacks. Ashley's hundreds suffered a loss of 15 men when the Arakara attacked them in 1823. They lost more than a few on the overland trips to and from the rendezvous. And the Battle of Pierre's Hole after the 1832 rendezvous killed dozens. Trapper John Coulter made his famous escape from the Blackfoot Indians while his associate John Potts died at their hands. The famed mountain man Jedediah Smith lost his life on the Cimarron River at the hands of the Comanche Indians. On more than one occasion, Thomas Fitzpatrick had run-ins with the Grove Vent tribe, nearly resulting in his death twice. While it was always a possibility, only a small percentage of the 3,000 or so trappers throughout history actually died at the hands of natives. In fact, more often than not, the friendly natives were instrumental in saving the mountain men from other hostile tribes. In Hugh Glass's case, an unknown native man treated his wounds and set him up with a shelter. 
Jim Bridger was once saved by an old native man who helped him escape captivity. Now, the next topic is broken bones. And when I tried to think of the most common ways to break a bone on the frontier, I found the list to be really long. So I'll only give you a few and you can fill in the rest. Uh, A wagon rolling over your arm while the owner is trying to change a wheel. Getting cracked with the backside of an axe or an adze that glances off a piece of wood. That would certainly break a bone. Falling from a slippery cliff or a muddy rock face. Being swept down river when one foot accidentally gets lodged between two large rocks. Horses and pack mules can throw you off or step on you. An animal bite can break a bone. Angry bears can fling you across the field with a swipe of a paw. Actually, because this list is quite expansive, and we don't have enough podcast time for that, I'll let you imagine the rest of your causes for broken bones. In the case of compound fractures, where the bone is protruding, the obvious remedy was the most often used. These men would attempt to reset the break, and a splint would be tied around the affected limb. I've also read that the lower leg of a dead horse, moose, elk, buffalo, or other large animal would be skinned in one solid piece from the knee down and slipped off the hoof. This was then slid over the affected area and allowed to dry. As it dried, it shrunk and it hardened, and it said it it would harden as much as a modern cast until it gets wet. I would assume that that one would only be used if you happen to have a dead horse laying around. Some compound fractures can lead to death, even today. Sepsis can hit the bloodstream and cause a whole host of problems. While there are certainly medicinal plants in the wilderness, and they likely knew how to use them, these would not likely have had the same efficacy of antibiotics we have today. With a lack of certified doctors, they had to do the best they could with what they had. However, it is chronicled that if an injury was too severe, but not life-threatening, the poor soul would be sent back to Missouri to have his wound tended to. And we know that Milton Sublette returned to Missouri after he acquired an infection in his leg that didn't respond to normal mountain medicine. For simple breaks, they often just toughed it out. But can you imagine the ache this must have given them in years to come, considering how often they were exposed to cold water and freezing temperatures? Now, another possible killer is dehydration. When you think of these trappers constantly standing in water to lay trap lines for the beaver that live there, the concept that dehydration might kill them seems silly. But we know there were times when they were traversing a mountain or across a desert that dehydration was a very real threat. Jedediah spent days in the desert trying to get to the 1827 rendezvous and nearly didn't make it. There were always ways to obtain water if you knew where to look. Even today, the ability to find potable water is one of the first things that you would learn in a wilderness survival training. A dry riverbed often has water hiding underneath it. It's as simple as digging a hole and waiting for the water to surface. Or a cloth laid out on the prairie grasses would collect morning dew. Certain plants contain a high concentration of drinking water, like barrel cactus and grapevines. These men would have been taught these tricks by veteran trappers and their leaders. Now, another possible cause of death would be starvation. While they were in camp or within the proximity of fellow trappers, it was unlikely they were going to starve, unless it was the dead of winter and the snows were extremely deep. 
But even then, these guys were professional hunters. They could read signs in nature with a proficiency that most modern hunters today only dream of. Dying of starvation really only became an issue when they were either separated from the group or somehow left alone without their rifle. And we know there were cases like that of Hugh Glass in 1823, where he was forced to survive on roots and berries as he crawled over the course of 200 miles. We know that Thomas Fitzpatrick survived on grasses and tree bark while he covered the hundred or so miles to the rendezvous in 1832. It's likely that the veteran trappers would also be educating the new guys on these long journeys as to what was edible. Now, the next topic is drowning. It may seem strange to us in this day and age where most people know how to swim, but it actually wasn't uncommon for mountain men to drown. This is a time before settlers had tamed the waterways. There were no bridges or ferries in the wilderness. Rivers weren't dammed and controlled like they are now. Torrential rains that you aren't aware of upriver could mean flash flooding downstream where you're about to cross over. We have a few accounts where men in gear were swept away by raging rivers. Uh, Mountain man and politician Osborne Russell wrote that a young man by the name of Abram Patterson from Pennsylvania tried to cross a river on horseback and he was the horse was floundering so patterson leaps from the horse's back and it said he made about three bounds before he went under and he was never seen again another possible injury or cause of death would be a snake bite one of the benefits of thick leather moccasins that reach to your knees is it's harder for snake fangs to get through so many of them didn't really have a concern about their feet and legs being targeted But for a person who was climbing over rocks, reaching into crevices, and sticking his hands into a pile of deadwood to set a beaver trap, being bitten on the hand is a very real concern. Treatment included that age-old make two X's and suck the poison out method, as well as applying ammonia to the bite to draw out the venom. One journal said that a child that was bitten was given a poultice of whiskey and tobacco to apply to the bite to draw out this venom. I'm not sure how effective ammonia or tobacco would have been, but the whole sucking out the venom method was fairly effective if done correctly, even if it was downright dangerous. Also, don't try that one at home. Another hazard of the job was cave-ins, and I know that sounds really strange, but let me explain. When the trappers wanted to store their supplies for a later date, they would build something called a cache. This is a huge hole, sometimes up to six feet deep, where they would put hides down on the bottom, place whatever precious cargo they had on that hide, and then cover it with more hides and fill the hole back in. And I found a few accounts actually of trappers being caught in a cave-in while in the process of digging these holes. Uh, On one occasion, one of the Smith, Jackson, and Sublette employees was completely buried, and his companions simply filled the hole in on top of him, knowing that his chances of survival were nil. On the second occasion, trapper Joe Meek and another man were caught in a cave-in, and Joe was seriously injured, although he was hauled out in the nick of time. The other man could not be saved. Trapper Zenis Leonard, his 1835 journal tells us that Captain Bonneville's party once had four men injured while digging a cache. Three of the four were sitting in the hole taking a break. One was standing. When the cave-in happened, the three sitting were buried up to their necks, and only the guy standing could dig himself out and go for help. 
When help arrived, the three were extricated, and while two of them did eventually recover, the third man had been completely crushed from the chest down. He died in agony the next morning. Another possible way to injure yourself would be an explosion. It could be a weapon or a powder keg or something of the like. Thomas Fitzpatrick famously blew off half of his left hand when his gun accidentally discharged trying to get the case off. This earned him the nickname Broken Hand. And Osborne Russell shows us in his 1835 journal that even the seasoned trappers could suffer these injuries. His entry reads, About dark, some of our trappers came to camp and reported one of their comrades to be lost or to have met with some serious accident. The next day, we concluded to stop at this place for the lost man, and four went in search of him, and returned at night without any tidings of him whatever. It was then agreed that either his gun had burst and killed him, or his horse had fallen with him over some tremendous precipice. He was a man of about 55 years of age, and of 30 years' experience as a hunter. Warren Ferris writes, in the evening of the 3rd of May, which a party of the Indians were amusing themselves at a war dance, one of them, a spectator, carelessly was resting his chin on the muzzle of his gun and was instantly killed by an unexpected discharge of its contents into his brain. The gun was probably accidentally exploded by the foot or the knee of some person passing in the crowd. And the naturalist John Kirk Townsend tells of a man who was reloading the gun he had just fired when the powder in his horn was ignited by the burning wad still in the barrel. Burns would have been treated by applying rendered animal fat or beeswax to the injured site. None of these things kept infections from setting in. Now, speaking of gunpowder, one way to stifle profuse bleeding was to cauterize the wound. This could be done by laying a flaming piece of metal on the wound using a stick pulled from the fire, or by laying gunpowder around the wound and lighting it off. If not done with extreme precision, this process could lead to bigger problems, obviously. I strongly encourage you to check out the Mountain Man Library for these and so many other incidences on the frontiers. You'll find a link to them on our website. Now, one other possible means of dying on the frontier was to be crushed by an animal or a wagon. Anyone who has ever been stepped on by a thousand-pound horse can attest to the pain it leaves you with. We know from the journals of the pioneers who would go west in the years following the fur trade that a common cause of death was being crushed by a falling wagon or an animal, and this was particularly common in children who fell from the wagon and landed in front of the rolling wheels. While the trappers had far fewer wagons, it was still a possibility. There are a few journal entries telling of traders being crushed under their fully loaded wagons of supplies. Now, the next possible mode of death is exposure to the elements. Freezing to death was a real possibility. These men were basically tent camping throughout the winter in sub-zero temperatures. We have some journal entries that give the daily weather, but they often say things like, it snowed today, rather than giving exact details. They didn't possess thermometers or yardsticks for accurate measuring. Even if we don't know how many feet of snow they received over a season, we can look at today's weather and get a feel for what it would have been. 
Anyone who currently lives in the Rocky Mountains can tell you that those mountain roads are treacherous in storms with several feet of snowfall in the forecast on a regular basis. People in Montana and Wyoming know what they have to go through to keep their car's oil from turning to jelly when the temperatures plunge below zero. So it isn't too far of a stretch to envision that there were times these men would bundle up to go collect firewood or find a privy in the middle of a raging blizzard. Whiteout conditions are disorienting, and a person who wandered away from camp could easily head back in the wrong direction. I would think that it generally didn't happen to veterans unless they were injured. They would have used tricks like following their own tracks, using landmark recognition. Um, and they have, most of them have, this incredibly accurate built-in compass. But new guys might not be so savvy. Now, if one person became seriously ill or injured, and it threatened the good of the whole party, it wasn't uncommon for the leader to assign one or two men to stay with that patient. They were tasked with providing that man comfort until such time as he died, and then they were to bury him and rejoin the party. One example of this is trapper Hiram Scott. He fell ill on a trip to St. Louis after the 1828 rendezvous. Depending on which account you believe, he was abandoned by his two caretakers, and rather than wait for the poor man to die, they just left him there. He supposedly crawled 40 to 100 miles or so from where he was abandoned before he finally succumbed either to the disease that he was sick with or to the elements. Another example, now made famous by the movie The Revenant, is the case of Hugh Glass. After he was attacked by a huge bear, he was so close to death that the two men were assigned and paid very well to stay and care for him until his passing. But they took his rifle and some of his gear and just left him. And while we don't know his motivation, it's been said that the whole reason he lived long enough to crawl the 200 miles back to his party was to get his favorite gun back and to kill the mangy dogs who left him to die. Thankfully, he forgave them and survived to fight another day. We also know that some of the men who contracted rabies ran off into the sunset in a foamy-mouthed craze. They were written off to nature. Now, whether they died of the disease or of the elements, we'll never know. Another problem that affected the trapper was an injury to his animal. This would have been a larger problem for the solo free trappers than it would have been for the guy traveling with a large company because companies often had extra horses. But generally, if you have one horse and it goes lame, it's a really long walk back to St. Louis. So these men kept their horses in top condition. Sometimes the horses were shod, which means they would be wearing metal horseshoes, and sometimes not. On Lewis and Clark's expedition in 1806, they were having a problem with their horses' unshod feet becoming sore. Their solution was to make buffalo skin moccasins for their horses to wear. And it actually worked so well that a patent was later submitted for horse moccasins by a guy named Walter Yates. And, as you can imagine, it didn't catch on. But it does highlight the frontiersman's ability to think outside the box when it comes to protecting himself and his horse. Now, the next thing we're going to discuss is the actual field of medicine. We have to remember that medicines were not as prevalent in this day, and certified educated doctors were trying to break down the, well, grandma used to do it, barrier of folk medicine. 
And while real educated doctors were using trials in the scientific method, other quacks were pushing around a cart full of Dr. So-and-so's cure-all snake oil. So modern medicine really had an uphill battle. As some of you may or may not realize, many of our modern drugs are completely or partially based off of plants that were found in abundance during this time period. And I want to be careful here and take a moment to make a very, very important disclaimer about how incredibly dangerous it is to just go pick a plant out of the woods and eat it if you don't know what it is. Don't do that. You may end up dead before you realize your mistake. And for the love of Pete, please don't post a picture on social media asking the uneducated masses what they think a plant might be and is it toxic. I've seen several incidences now where a very toxic plant was misidentified by the masses and could have ended in disaster. Know what you consume. Anyways, my point is that the plants in the wilderness had the potential to treat the common problems of the frontier. Now, I studied with a Lakota woman about the uses of herbs and plants. This was taught to her by her mother, who learned it from her grandmother. And she told me that the creator provided a plant cure for every ailment man would suffer, including cancer. You only had to know where to look. She, of course, followed it with, and then the white men came and paved over most of them. My point is, there are plants there that we can use for our health. You must know what they are before you consume them. So for every trapper who traveled with a company, there would have been at least a few native wives around camp who would be familiar with medicinal plants and remedies. However, they wouldn't know what to do about something they'd never seen before, like cholera. But they would have known to use willow bark for pain or bone set for fractures or slippery elm for coughs and sore throats. They would certainly have shared that information with the trappers in their group. Additionally, the mountain men often had those snake oil treatments that were common back east. For example, mercuric chloride, which is better known as mercury, was believed to be a cure for a great many ailments. It was administered until the patient began to drool uncontrollably, which they mistook for the drug is working properly, when in actuality, it's a telltale sign for mercury poisoning. People then did not understand what they were doing. It was extremely toxic, and it killed them slowly. But at that time, it was one of the most prescribed drugs. Another popular drug was laudanum. This is basically opium dissolved in alcohol, but you could buy it over the counter as recently as the early 20th century. Uh, In fact, laudanum was a powerful analgesic that had been used for centuries in Europe, and its effects were well known to the frontiersmen and women. If you've ever seen the movie Tombstone, that's what they're taking. It's laudanum. Now, an interesting general ailment medicine was the combination of ipecac and opium. This was considered to be the best way to induce sweating so that the patient would purge his system of whatever ailed him. Now, if you're not familiar with Ipecac, it makes you vomit in a very dramatic way. And I can imagine that in itself would induce sweating with a side effect of stomach spasms, cramping, and dehydration. Maybe the opium was added so that you didn't care if you were barfing your full head off. 
Or perhaps a, a trapper might take a good old swallow of castor oil, which was one of those grandma's favorite fix-alls. This, of course, causes vomiting, very painful diarrhea, and stomach cramping, which will eventually lead to dehydration. But you see my point. The fields of understanding ailments in pharmaceuticals was still very young, and some of these diseases they were trying to treat would simply just get better on their own over time. And sometimes the treatment was worse than the ailment. For example, back then it was believed that bad humors were the cause of some diseases. Foul-smelling air or stagnant water supposedly created toxic fumes that sickened and killed people. This is sometimes called the miasma theory, and it won't be until 1890, which is a solid 50 years after the fur trade is faded, that the miasma theory will be replaced with the germ theory that we know to be true today. If you think back to the movies of the medieval days in Europe, leeches were used to suck out a patient's blood, thereby sucking out the bad humors. Well, the American frontier had a similar misguided belief in that if you opened a vein and let the bad blood spurt out, you'd release the bad humors back into the air. Considering the lack of proper sterilization techniques, which back then usually involved pouring whiskey over a knife that you just got done gutting a rotting animal with, it meant you were introducing all sorts of nastiness into that vein that you just stuck the knife into. It's important to point out that these guys weren't the cleanest individuals. Some of them wore the same clothes and moccasins day in and day out, without even thinking of giving them a good washing. Not all of them, of course. Some of them bathed on a regular basis. And in one journal entry I read, it said the mountain men were giving a new recruit a really hard time because he insisted on changing his clothes every day. Now we must also remember that this is before any understanding of hygiene for good health or social distancing when you're sick. I mean, even in the past two years, the world has been enthralled in this debate of whether or not a mask prevents COVID-19. So another strange belief I found was from the pioneers who would enter into these valleys in the fading years of the fur trade, and that was that freshly turned sod caused malaria. It wasn't the millions of mosquitoes in these swampy valley basins. It was the dirt they had just turned over to put in their gardens. So be thankful that you live in this day and age of reason and modern medicine. My point is, during this time, the trappers have limited knowledge about medical situations because the professionals still have limited knowledge about medical situations. Men in the mountains would have used a combination of folk medicine, natural plants, chants and prayers, and sheer obstinate willpower to keep from dying. Now, I saved the topic of disease for last because it's a pretty big topic. Uh, there were a number of things floating around on the frontier, and generally they didn't understand any of it. For anyone who grew up playing the video game Oregon Trail, you can probably name most of them. These diseases would have included tuberculosis, smallpox, cholera, typhus, typhoid fever, yellow fever, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, malaria, influenza, and of course everyone's favorite Oregon Trail meme, dysentery. Now the vitamin deficiency known as scurvy was also a problem, as well as something that the trappers called mountain fever. 
no one's actually sure what mountain fever was because the symptoms were common to other diseases and some speculate that it was typhoid fever while others suggest it was an insect-borne disease like Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Also, there are a number of journal entries that discuss camp fever. And while some say it might have been typhus, dysentery, malaria, and half a dozen other ailments, most everything I've read says it was probably scurvy. So let's look at scurvy first. Scurvy is a disease caused by the deficiency of vitamin C. It often affected poorly nourished sailors because having fresh food on a three-month-long voyage on a ship was extremely difficult. Everything would rot before the voyage was over. Our mountain man would have had access to fresh foods, but only for eight or nine months of the year. Winter fare was most often food that had been preserved. Since the most common methods of food preservation back in this day were pickling everything in alcohol, vinegar, or salt, you can see where there would have been a lack of vitamin-rich foods. It's also likely that their diet wasn't very well balanced. Fruits and vegetables on the frontier it required cultivating, and these men were never in the same place long enough for that. The symptoms of scurvy were swollen and bleeding gums, your teeth falling out, blue and red spots on your shins, and skin that bruised very easily. The treatment for this disease is to boost your vitamin C levels. Today we use fruits, oranges, limes, lemons. Native women would have been familiar with certain plants that could fix this problem but they were also likely in the winter to have it buried under several feet of snow. Another common ailment that cropped up at winter camps was the common cold, although they called it the catar, and also the flu. Sometimes the flu was called winter sickness. While colds and flus didn't cause many deaths at this time, they did open the door for bigger problems like pneumonia. And unfortunately, we have no statistics on the mortality rate of any of these ailments. Also floating around the continent at this time was diphtheria and scarlet fever. Now, until the late 1800s, it wasn't really understood how these two diseases were different. The symptoms were so similar, and it wasn't even really studied in New England until a viral outbreak in 1735. Even then, these two diseases were sometimes misdiagnosed as smallpox or measles until it was too late. Now, typhus comes in a multitude of varieties and is transmitted through body lice. There is a journal entry from missionary Samuel Parker at the 1835 rendezvous that says Jim Bridger's clothes were so badly riddled with body lice that Dr. Marcus Whitman attempted to purify them with gunpowder and a quick spark. Unfortunately, he used too much gunpowder, and he ended up catching the whole suit on fire and ruining the buckskins. So Jim Bridger had to wear someone else's buffalo robe until the other guys could help him get new clothes together. Now think about this. After Bridger got his new gear, he gave the robe back to the owner, complete with his body lice hitchhiking inside. One can just envision the body lice transferring back and forth in this encounter. This is not a world for the germaphobe. Typhus symptoms included flu-like ailments, headaches, fever, chills, general fatigue, and eventually a rash would cover the whole body and the poor victim would go mad with fever. Death was inevitable and usually welcomed. 
Now, typhus is not to be confused with typhoid fever. Typhoid fever is actually caused by poor sanitation, infected drinking water, and overcrowding. In fact, typhoid fever was the first European epidemic that we brought to the new continent. The settlers in Jamestown had to deal with typhoid fever way back in 1607, and they lost nearly 85% of their inhabitants to it. This disease was easy to misdiagnose, and it was often confused with dysentery or typhus. By the time the mistake was realized, patients could be delirious with fever or even suffer cardiac arrest from the physical strain on the body. Now, another disease that was common during this time was malaria. Malaria was known during this time as fever and ague. That is spelled A-G-U-E, but it's pronounced ague. It was believed to come from bad air that flowed up out of the ground. It was actually caused by the millions of budding mosquitoes that certain areas were prone to. So in swampy areas where the larvae could breed by the gazillions, malaria was a big problem. In fact, it was so common back east, it was seldom even recorded in documents. It was seen more as a kind of goes with a territory complaint. The thing about ague was that its symptoms were similar to that of the flu. Chills, vomiting, aches and pains were what the diagnoser was seeing. What they couldn't see was that malaria was destroying the red blood cells and clogging the, the capillaries that lead to the brain and to other vital organs. So another mosquito-borne ailment similar to that is yellow fever, sometimes called the black vomit. This disease had a quick onset, and as the name suggests, would cause vomiting of black bile and hemorrhaging from your orifices, so you actually bled out your eyes and ears. Dysentery was sometimes misdiagnosed as ague and vice versa. But dysentery is a disease spread through a parasitic worm or a bacteria in water or food contaminated with feces. It was common in overcrowded places like ships or soldier forts where lots of people didn't wipe very well or wash their hands before touching food and other items. This is also days before the antibiotics and antibacterial drugs that we would have treated these victims with. The primary symptom of dysentery is severe diarrhea, which causes dehydration and can lead to other problems. Primarily, dysentery deaths can be summed up as you shat yourself to death. Now, smallpox, we've talked about in other episodes. Smallpox is a disease that was brought over from Europe to several places at the same time. So while the French were bringing it to Quebec, the English were bringing it to their colonies, the Dutch to their colonies, etc., etc., and the disease generally arrived about the same time we did, back in the 1600s. There is even one account of the soldiers of Fort Pitt attempting to weaponize smallpox during Pontiac's rebellion by giving blankets from the recently deceased smallpox victims to their native delegations. Smallpox was an awful disease, covering the victim in fire-red spots and causing serious pain. If the person survived, they were certainly scarred for life. Unfortunately, many natives did succumb to this European disease. But probably the number one killer of both whites and natives was cholera. Uh, the opportunity for sanitation was close to nil. They, they knew enough to place the latrines far away from camp, 
but more often than not, they relieved themselves in the same water source that they used to get rid of animal waste and trash that they bathed and washed their dishes in. It was often running water, and the assumption was that their waste would be carried away was a valid assumption, but it carried the waste downstream to the next settlement or camp below them. This means they were dealing with the waste from the people upstream, though they didn't realize it at the time. One of my favorite cartoons shows a mountain man bent down at the waterfall in a creek to drink, and there's a dead moose laying in the water just above the falls. That, oh, The symptoms of cholera start with a stomachache that can grow into intense pain within minutes, and I do literally mean minutes. From the moment it's contracted, you have minutes before the vomiting and diarrhea, the abdominal cramping, and the intense gut pain follows. The infected person is usually dead within 24 hours. This is a ridiculously fast-moving disease. Now, at higher elevations, the temperatures were colder, and cholera was often kept at bay. But those same contaminated water sources which flowed down the mountains and into the plains where climates were more temperate, and the water quickly became breeding grounds. This is where the Native Americans lived. The first record I could find of cholera affecting the mountain men themselves was in 1832 in New Orleans. By 1833, it had made its way to St. Louis, and it followed the trappers up the Missouri and the Mississippi rivers. An epidemic of cholera hit St. Louis in 1849, killing an estimated 6,000 people. As Europeans east of the Alleghenies started seeing their friends and families drop from this awful disease to the tune of like 12 to 15 people a day, they tried to get out of town as quick as possible, and they began pouring over the mountains into the plains, taking this disease with them. So during the years of the Rocky Mountain Fur Company rendezvous, which are from 1822 to 1840, it's estimated that 15,000 people died of the disease. But that wasn't the worst part. The diseases that those settlers who flooded over the Alleghenies brought would devastate the native populations. Estimates I've read say that more than half of the native tribes would be decimated by cholera. The Cheyenne Nation alone lost two-thirds of its people to it. Now, by the end of 1840s, most of our mountain men were retiring into their next lives as guides and military scouts. While there still were many of the same threats, white folks are beginning to tame the wilderness, and they're conquering these natives, either by forcing them out or by killing them with disease, so those threats are starting to wane. One thing we don't talk about when we talk about the ailments of the mountain man is women. Childbirth made women extremely vulnerable to a whole new pantheon of ailments, especially something called childbirth fever, which today we know is preparal fever. This can take a mother's life, usually within three days of her giving birth. On the frontier with no trained medical professionals, the mortality rate from this disease alone was almost 50%. And that just doesn't even include the other litany of pregnancy-related ailments. That's just purpural fever. Jim Bridger lost three wives each three days after giving birth. We don't have a proper diagnosis for their conditions or their cause of death, 
But the math certainly adds up, doesn't it? So what's a mountain man to do with a brand new infant who is now motherless? Well, wet nurses were available if other women in camp were breastfeeding. And in all likelihood, the infant wouldn't survive very long anyways. On the frontier, 75%. That was the infant mortality rate. But many did survive, including all of Jim Bridger's three babies. So without question, life on the frontier was brutal. It was bone-numbingly cold in the winter and brain-meltingly hot in the summers. The frequency of accidental death and dismemberment would make an OSHA rep curl into the fetal position. Diseases and illness ran rampant through wagons and camps and homes where large numbers of mouth breathers were packed into one dwelling. If you've got a family of 15 kids, which was not uncommon, one kid gets it, you're all getting it. Even now, we have three kids and we pass these germs around. We send one kid to daycare and he comes home with a new disease every week. Imagine what it was like having 15 people in the same building. Besides that, the work was physically challenging. These guys were slinging 95-pound bales of, of fur. And in some cases of the voyagers, they were carrying two, three, four, five. That's a lot of weight, a lot of physical demand on a person's body. And to see one's 70th birthday was a very rare occurrence. If they did manage to make it to their twilight years, the extreme toll on their bodies caused immense suffering from ailments like gout and rheumatism, and crippling arthritis was almost guaranteed. In this day and age of modern medicine that we live in, we often fuss about waiting in line at the pharmacy or having to get referrals or the skyrocketing cost of keeping ourselves healthy. Let's just remember that the alternative isn't a pretty one. Thanks for coming along with me on this journey through mountain medicine. I hope you all enjoyed the trip. I invite you to check out the website for some awesome links to resources about this time period. Join me again in a few weeks for another episode. My name is Tracy Walmer, and as always, keep your powder dry. Mm-hmm.